Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome back listeners to this episode of the Pre-Paces Podcast. Dr. Sam Williams here and today we take an in-depth look at Parkinsonism with the absolutely brilliant Dr. Ian Wilkinson, consultant geriatrician and host of the MDT podcast. That's T spelt T-E-A. We go on to talk about the podcast during the show and I can highly recommend it for those of you who are interested in geriatrics as a career. Quick shout out this week to Dr. Abhishek Mukherjee, all the way from Calcutta in India, who got in touch to say he passed paces at his first attempt with the help of the podcast. Massive congratulations to you. Here's to another Paces success story. But without further ado, let's jump into this week's episode with Dr. Ian Wilkinson. Welcome to the Pre-Paces Podcast, the podcast that turns your pre-exam rigidity and slow movement into a flowing ballerina of love when you eventually pass paces. Today's episode, we're bringing on board another fantastic guest for you, examining a topic which comes up so frequently in paces, and that is Parkinsonism. To join us tackling this topic, we're delighted to welcome Dr. Ian Wilkinson. Ian is a consultant geriatrician at Surrey and Sussex Healthcare NHS Trust with a specialist interest in orthogeriatrics and movement disorders. He's also the training program director for geriatric medicine in Kent, Surrey and Sussex. He's also the co-clinical lead for the Parkinson's UK Excellence Network on the Southeast Coast. And for the last six years, which is incredible, by the way, has presented the fantastic MDT podcast, which is a podcast aimed at all healthcare professionals involved in the care of older adults. So Ian, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that glowing and uh, introduction. It sounds quite weird when you put it like that, but yeah, the MDT has been going six years now. So, Yeah. And I, th- I thought just before, uh, before we start talking about Parkinsonism, I thought we'd just have a, a brief chat about the MDT podcast. I've been aware of it for some time and I've listened through a, a sort of a, a few choice select episodes. It's a podcast I always recommend to uh, IMT doctors who have an interest in geriatrics or uh, enjoy caring for older patients. So can you just give us a bit of background to the show? What does it usually involve and, and how did you first get the idea for it? Yeah, so what we do or what we have done for the first 100 episodes 
is take a clinical topic and the idea is it is a a group of people that know something about the topic discussing it like you're listening into a conversation over a cup of tea that, that's kind of where we started um so we might discuss atrial fibrillation or parkinson's disease or uh constipation or delirium or something like that you know for, for the episode but the each episode is about up to 45 minutes something like that some are a little longer some are a little shorter uh and we use the whole multidisciplinary team to try and gauge uh, opinions as to what we should talk about and then if we don't have the subspecialists that we need within our faculty we will sort of you know get someone in for the episode uh, so that there there are people that that you know genuinely know something about about the topics and then we map them to the foundation curriculum the IMT curriculum the higher specialty training curriculum for geriatric medicine and uh, obviously therefore general uh, internal medicine as was and so on our website there are all of the references all of the scripts all of the show notes um we set up a cpd log a few years ago so people can write reflections and you get a copy of that email back to you and then we get those reflections to look in sort of to look at the structure of our episodes to try and refine stuff and make it a bit better but the last couple of episodes last couple of series rather but the last series actually what we've done is we followed a patient through their journey in the hospital and so we've done a single episode on each of the members of the multi-professional team that this patient has interacted with through her journey in the hospital um to give people a little bit of an insight so if you you know if you don't really know what the difference between a physiotherapist and an occupational therapist is then then this is the place to to come and we'll we'll try and unpick some of that yeah fantastic and the thing which really led me to you for to get in touch with you for this episode is the fact that i used to um well i went to university with steve who is now currently your uh clinical sort of education fellow helping to produce the the podcast mm. and uh yeah and and steve put me put me on to you so as i say thank you so much for coming mm. on the show to discuss this topic yeah and we're, we've been lucky enough actually because because we we've managed to get funding from our local branch of health education england for the last Four years now we've been lucky enough to have clinical fellows working on the project um so they you know get involved with, with actually sort of making the episodes uh, a bit of podcast production and um you know some general education and we will be looking for a new person soon so uh if you're interested please do get in touch <laughs> yeah brilliant so any foundation doctors potentially listening in you fancy a, a career in medicine with a special interest in podcasting <laughs> keep your eyes and where can they find out about that ian uh, if they um, email me uh, via through the podcast. So if they go to the podcast website, there's a contact link. And then if they just drop me an email through that, that's probably the easiest way. Or on Twitter. And I'm at, I'm at geriatricsdoc on Twitter. Brilliant. And one last thing before we start on the show is that every episode where we have a consultant on, we have our regular feature quiz, the consultant the quiz where our bosses take on a number of questions on a specialist subject of their own choosing with the caveat being it can't be to do with medicine. So Ian, what have you named as your specialist subject? I think after much deliberating, I, I think we've gone with sort of modernish folk music. I think, I think that's where we're going to go. Yeah, absolutely right. So I've written 10 questions on folk music, but ten. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have more of that at the end of the show but for now let's get stuck into this episode looking at parkinsonism so ian just starting off right at the start why might a patient with parkinson's or with parkinsonism be a suitable station to have in paces 
I think when you are preparing for hosting a PACES examination, what the teams want are patients with relatively stable clinical signs so that you can get people teed up before the exam and you know what their signs are and they're not going to change a couple of days before the exam. Uh, you want patients who are quite well. You know, there's nothing worse than than trying to grab patients from the wards on the day of the exam, you know, who are, who are, who are poorly. And you want a condition that is quite common, um, I think, anyway. And Parkinson's disease and, and Parkinsonism is a common condition. You know, it, it's around between one and a half and two percent of the UK population over 65 have Parkinson's disease. And so it's common. It's relatively stable, you know, in that it's it's a condition that causes slowing and it is a slowly progressive condition. So people have it and live with Parkinson's disease for a long time. And therefore, the signs are relatively stable. Therefore, it, it just really lends itself really well to a um, an examination type setup. Really. Yeah, brilliant. And if we can just before we jump into the station itself run through a couple of the basics to do with uh, parkinsonism and so one of the things which a couple of the phrases we've used already what exactly would be the difference between someone with parkinsonism and parkinson's disease so i think so parkinsonism is a constellation of clinical signs and parkinson's disease is a clinical diagnosis so the clinical signs that would give rise to parkinsonism are a combination of rigidity, tremor, and slowness of movement or bradykinesia. So if someone has those three things, they have by definition Parkinsonism. And we'll talk later, I'm sure, about the potential differentials that you might explore with that. But essentially the most common differential of those is idiopathic Parkinson's disease. And I think I'll say at this point that I view Parkinson's disease as a sort of an overarching label for a number of conditions that follow a spectrum. So I think at one end of the spectrum, you have people with the young onset Parkinson's disease that is probably genetic. At the other end of the spectrum, you have people who have a much later onset Parkinson's disease that is probably random. The younger type generally are more likely to have tremor dominant disease. Older people generally are more likely to have an akinetic rigid syndrome, so a stiffness rather than lots of tremor. And the progression between those two, so tremor dominant and akinetic rigid, is quite different. People who have tremor dominant idiopathic Parkinson's disease tend to progress relatively slowly. They are very stable. Tremor is the predominant feature. And it's also, incidentally, I think the hardest feature to try and treat. And um, people with akinetic rigid syndrome progress much more rapidly, still slowly, but much more rapidly and often have, by definition, less tremor. So that's the idiopathic Parkinson's disease side of things. And then Parkinsonism is that constellation of signs. So I'll just go through them again. So it's bradykinesia, slowness of movement. That's the most important thing. It's, it's, it's not possible, I don't think, to diagnose Parkinson's disease without bradykinesia. But So Parkinsonism is bradykinesia, increased tone, and tremor. And the most common differential is idiopathic Parkinson's disease, but there are others, vascular and other things that we'll talk about later. Yeah, we'll come on to talk about the differential diagnoses later in the show. And one thing which 
I guess they they may discuss in paces, but again, might be just be helpful just to run through the basics again. If we look a bit closer at sort of idiopathic Parkinson's disease, what is the pathophysiological process which is underlying the the disease itself? So in Parkinson's disease, the the core problem is there's not enough dopamine in areas within the brain. And the reason that there is not enough dopamine is because of the accumulation of something called Lewy bodies. And Lewy bodies are something that you can see under a microscope that are an accumulation themselves of an, a protein called alpha-synuclein. And what we think happens is that alpha-synuclein aggregates and forms beta-pleated sheets. And when you get these beta-pleated sheets, they, they come together and they're called fibrils, and that's what you can see and is a Lewy body. As alpha-synuclein progresses and continues to aggregate, what happens is, is once one protein has sort of changed shape, it causes the next one to change shape and the next one, a bit like a prion disease in a way, I guess. Therefore, you get this, this progressive accumulation of, of disease. You can stage Parkinson's disease based on the clinical features that people have, and that would be something called the Hernan-Yar staging system, or you can base it on the pathophysiology. And there was a suggestion by um, a chap called Brock and the Brock staging uh, of Parkinson's disease that quite nicely um, describes the pathogenesis and the progression that people have. So in Brach stages one and two, Lewy bodies are mainly observed in the dorsal motor nucleus, the reticular formation and the anterior olfactory nucleus. So it's, it's a lower, lower brain thing. And that would explain why people with Parkinson's disease often have um, features of dysfunction in that area of the brain for some time beforehand. So they may lose their sense of smell. They may have uh, sleep related problems. Uh, they may have early non-motor symptoms such as constipation, um, REM sleep behavior disorder, uh, restless legs, things like that. Then as the disease progresses, eventually it gets to the substantia nigra, so beginning of stage three, stage four, and that's when you start to develop clinical signs, um, and that's at the point that you'll then present with your movement disorder, usually to a GP or a movement disorder service. And then as the disease progresses into Brach stage six, uh, five and six, you have involvement of the entire cortex uh, and higher order areas, including sort of the prefrontal cortex. So you then get cognitive dysfunction, you get hallucinations um, and a lot, a lot more sort of widespread cortical destruction. But the, the root problem is with alpha-synuclein and its, its aggregation. Fantastic. What a great run through of just the uh, the basics of the pathophysiology of, of Parkinson's. And when it comes to paces, you may not be interrogated on, on quite the, the, the minutiae of that, but we are going to cover the examination side of it. And it typically, um, Parkinsonism typically presents in a neurological examination station. And one of the tricky things with this station in particular is that it's during a, a full neurological examination. So the expectation would be you would perform a tone power coordination reflexes and sensation but they don't have a majority of signs they don't have that or it's not typical at least to have sensory deficits in in parkinson's so the key thing as ian's outlined is to look for these clusters of clinical symptoms um, associated which we'll go on to talk about and so on the show we always go through the station as a candidate would approach it so we start off with the the vignette which you might get um 
as you approach the patient. And in something like this, it might be that what's written on the on the vignette might give an indication. It might be something such as an abnormal gait, suffering with falls, or they might even volunteer a tremor. So the vignette may give you a slight indication that you're looking at a patient with possible Parkinsonism. So you'll go on to start the examination in the usual way. And you'll start off usually by looking at the end of the bed for paraphernalia around the bed and then at the patient themselves. So, so Ian, what might the candidates be able to see from the end of the bed when starting their examination of these patients? Yeah, so I think I think the thing to, to look at is is both the patient and the surrounding. So maybe if we think about the, the surrounding first, you may see uh, mobility aids, so a stick or um, a relator frame. You may see medication, uh, particularly if the examination is going for a long time, patients will probably need to take some medication during the examination, so they may well have that with them. Um, and that, that might be all that you see, uh, actually. And then if you're looking at the patient as you're sort of looking from a distance, you might see a tremor. Uh, and this is classically sort of a pill rolling, resting tremor. Um, and so it's a good time to look for that uh, before you get too involved and moving the patient around too much. And you may hide uh, any tremor away. But I think that's a good a good point to look for that. And then you may see a reduced facial expression, so a hypermimic face, um, particularly at rest then if you get the patient to talk, uh, their voice may be quite quiet um, with hyperphonia. Yeah, I think that's the main things, really. There's not huge amounts that you're going to pick up. But if you spot those things, you've, you've kind of there, you know, and you, you're thinking to yourself, right, this person could have PD. How am I going to show in the next, you know, three minutes that they've got PD? And what signs am I going to go looking for to, to really um, confirm my diagnosis? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I would say as well is that because this is such a common pacer station, this is one which maybe I should have said at the start, but I feel this is one that the examiners would expect you to do well on. You know, it's a pacer's classic. So really your approach to this is going to have to be well-practiced. It's going to have to be fluent, systematic and thorough. So hopefully we'll manage to get you through that uh, as we talk it through in today's show. So Ian, if the if the candidates do see a tremor from the end of the bed, it might be it might be sensible to try and focus on that almost straight away. So what sort of features of the tremor would would candidates be able to associate with with the typical tremor of Parkinson's? So it's a resting tremor. So we'll be there at rest, often sort of a rotational element to it in the hand, around four to six hertz. So that means it it the tremor occurs four to six times in a second. Uh, you're going to want to get people just to rest their hands down, probably just on their lap if they're lying in bed, um, and then you may well see that come out. If somebody's holding something, so if their knuckles are white, if they're gripping on something, you're going to want to just get them to relax that down because that, that will hide the tremor a bit. You can sometimes enhance the tremor by getting people to uh, uh, talk out loud, just a bit of distraction, that sometimes helps. The tremor, in terms of symmetricality, Parkinson's disease always starts on one side and in true idiopathic Parkinson's disease that side is always worse than the other side so there may well be a and sometimes quite a a prominent uh, asymmetrical uh, distribution to that tremor um, particularly in early disease. The other thing that sometimes gets mistaken for tremor is when people have dyskinesias and that's the other thing that that you can actually see and that's when people have effectively too much movement so they can't sit still and so that looks a bit more 
like hemibilismus, it's often quite rhythmical and writhing. And that is generally someone that is over-treated rather than under-treated. Would you say that if a patient, if you examine a patient and find the tremor to be reasonably equally symmetrical, that maybe the that would point away from something like idiopathic Parkinson's disease and point more towards a, a different diagnosis? No, not really. Um, I think all of the tremors in all the conditions can be unilateral or bilateral. Um, it wouldn't, certainly in clinical practice, it wouldn't, wouldn't push me away from one or the other. Um, if the tremor is bilateral in Parkinson's disease, I'm sure when you assess tone, what you'll find, and when we come on to that, particularly with synkinesis, is one, one side will have an increased tone compared to the other. Well, if we segue from that into tone, obviously one of the things with the neurological examination is that there's a lot to include, particularly if you do include things like sensation. And so rattling through these quicker elements of the of the examination is, is really of paramount importance. So when you're assessing tone, obviously you're going to be um, moving all joints, the shoulder, the elbow and the wrist, performing all the different movements. So what would the candidates expect to find in a patient with, with Parkinsonism? So you'd expect to find, with, with Parkinsonism, you would expect to find an increased tone um, and you would hope to find that at the wrist you have a degree of cogwheeling when you rotate that round. Um, so as you, you hold above the wrist and you hold the hand and you rotate sort of the wrist through a decent range of movement and you'll find that rather than it being a smoothly increased tone, it sort of goes bop, 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 and it's like literally like a cogwheel as it goes around. Um, if tone is relatively normal or only slightly increased, if you get someone to move on the other side, so you get them to wave or to tap with the contralateral side, um, the increased tone really does become quite prominent in, in Parkinson's disease. And so that's that's called synkinesis, syn together, kinesis movement. What I tend to do is I tend to assess the tone on the left hand and then the right hand, and I go back to the left hand and I do it again. And I say, now while I'm doing it this side, can you wave at me with your right hand? And then I, I do the same on the other side. And I think if you are assessing tone like that, I think that's completely fine to do that. If we move on to the next thing now, this might take a lot of candidates sort of out of their routine neurological examination, because one of the things which we mentioned at the start is that often patients with Parkinson's may not have any abnormalities seen in a good number of the domains of a neurological examination. So typically when I was practicing for paces, I would always go for tone power reflexes in that order. So if we quickly just touch on the power reflexes and, and sensation, in my experience, uh, Ian, you may, you may agree, you may not. There often aren't that many findings to be found. They often have preserved power, the reflexes are intact, and there's no sensory deficits. Would you agree? I would, yeah, yeah. should be normal. Um, and so the examiners may, may push you through those bits. You know, they may indicate that they want you to move on. Um, and I guess you may take a punt at this point as to whether or not you want to go through all of those things or almost say out loud, I think this person may have Parkinsonism at this point. So I am now going to go on and assess for bradykinesia and other bits. You know, I'm guessing if they want you to do sensation to prove that you can do it, they may well then go, no, I want you to do it. Brilliant. However, coordination is something where you may find some abnormalities there. So what might the candidates find if they assess the coordination of, of a patient with Parkinson's? So the coordination itself, per se, in Parkinson's disease should be normal. 
but the whilst assessing coordination, it gives you an opportunity to see someone's speed of movement. And it also gives you an opportunity to see whether or not they have other types of tremor than a resting tremor. And in both Parkinson's disease and also essential tremor, you can have a number of different types of tremor. So I think maybe if we just talk about that briefly, if that's okay, Sam, and then then we'll come on to talking through that. So tremor types, so you can have tremor at rest. This is when you have a tremor when you've got no voluntary muscle activity. And then you've got a range of action tremors. So that uh, is a tremor that occurs whilst you've got voluntary movement or some kind of sustained posture. So the first one is postural. So that might be you get people to lift their hands out in front and the tremor occurs when you're resisting the force of gravity. Within that, you can have a re-emergent tremor. So that means when they move the hands initially, the tremor is not there. And then after a period of time, it then comes on. Other than postural, you can then have a kinetic tremor. So that just occurs on movement. You know, I find that relatively uh, relatively rare. And then an intention tremor, which is the thing that we're looking for when we're then doing coordination, I guess, thinking about cerebellar. So that's goal-directed movement. And as you get closer to the target, you get a greater tremor as you move closer to the target. Um, and that's, I think, the thing that you're looking for and thinking about when you're assessing for coordination in Parkinson's disease. You're wanting to make sure someone doesn't have a cerebellar dysfunction at the same time, which would open up a range of other um, diagnoses. Brilliant. And so with that in mind, as Ian said before, you may wish to cut your examination short. It's, I would say, to to cover your backs in the heat of the exam, I would always just ask the, the examiner, say that you suspect that Parkinson's is the diagnosis and that you want to perform a more focused examination to that. I can't say either way if that if your examiner on the day will say, nope, I want you to do a full examination or they'll let you um, continue and perform a more focused examination. But that's part of the old cut and thrust of paces is sort of going, going with the flow and being adaptable to any situation. So that might be something which you as, as candidates and as listeners might just have to approach when you come to that station. And so one of the other things which is sort of interesting in, in this station is that it can be a lower limb examination as well as an upper limb examination. My feeling would be that typically the upper limb examination would be of, of higher yields. But if the presentation is something like an increase in falls or uh, immobility, then assessing gait is something which would give a huge amount of credibility to your diagnosis as, as one of Parkinsonism. Yeah, I think so. And I think if you've got particularly someone with gait, gait gives you huge amounts in this in this thing um and i think um what you would be looking for on gait is your usual sort of gait things so you know looking at heel strike and um carry and, and and how long people spend in the different phases of gait but also you'd be looking for what the arms are doing and often the first sign that you see in in idiopathic parkinson's disease is a reduced arm swing on one side um and then the rest of the gait changes and you get a tremor and you get the the um slightly leaning forward gait and the difficulty in gait initiation. Vascular Parkinsonism really often <laughs> presents with a lower limb gait disorder. Um, and so people will have give difficulty with gait initiation. And if that's the thing that they initially present with and they have no upper limb features, it's nearly always vascular. So I think that's that's key to look at. And then also, I guess, in with the coordination, sorry, we're just jumping slightly, uh, you would look at bradykinesia. 
And the way that you would do that is looking at a repetitive movement. So what most of us use is a finger tapping. And what you're looking for there is the the speed of the finger tapping, but actually the amplitude. So how quick and how large the movement. So as you tap first finger and thumb together, um, what you'll see if you if you do it with yourself, when you open your hands up, you'll you'll get to like this sort of C shape um, with your fingers. Um, what will happen in Parkinson's disease is they won't get that far. They'll end up with a quite a small thing. So they may maintain good speed, but they'll have a very small uh, tapping of the fingers. Yeah, perfect. And in a, a lower limb examination, what would be the, the sort of equivalent that you would do it in a lower limb? So I tend to do it in a seated position and I get people to stamp on the floor. And you're listening for and looking for the, the size of the movement and, and I guess the loudness of the stamp. Brilliant. Okay. And so gait, super important and often very typical in, in these patients. And then if you have any time at the end, or if your examiner is kind and says, yep, you can skip the sensation uh, and other parts of the examination, there are plenty of extras that you can do to really shine in this station. We've already mentioned formally assessing bradykinesia, which would be helpful to do in coordination. And then there's a few other things, aren't there? And so one of the things which would be helpful is assessing the speech of the patient. Yeah. And you can, again, you're looking for speed and amplitude. And so you're looking for uh, volume of voice and then the ability to sort of go through uh, difficult to say words, essentially, you know, so British constitution or baby hippopotamus, something that requires quite a ba 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 ba. Uh, it's, it's quite a helpful turn of phrase. So baby hippopotamus is quite good. And that's sometimes tricky, <laughs> really tricky for people who have got Parkinson's. And then you can assess uh, function. So you can do writing, looking for micrographia, and also maybe whether or not they've got a tremor there, because if someone had a central tremor, often that, that's the thing that comes out. Functional things, they're so doing a button, zips, something like that. And then there's eye signs. And we will talk later about the difference between uh, Parkinson's disease and some of the Parkinson plus disorders and vertical eye movements are particularly important for helping to uh, exclude progressive supranuclear palsy at this point. Yeah. And one of the things you mentioned quite, uh, quite early on in the show, when we were talking about the pathophysiology is anosmia. Um, and whilst you're not going to have time to um, formally examine this, it demonstrates your competency and confidence in the examination by saying that you would try and formally assess for anosmia if, uh, if indicated. So, you know, that's just another thing to mention. Um, and something which a lot of candidates may not see unless they're in a sort of specialist center where they offer this is, is a deep brain stimulator. Now, the, in my experience, Ian, these are patients who have very advanced um, Parkinson's and I was lucky enough to do a neurology job in a, in a trust, which, which performed this procedure. And so, uh, Maybe you can just give us a brief background on, on deep brain stimulation. Yeah, so DBS is one of the three more, uh, three more advanced treatments for complex Parkinson's. So if people are on treatment five or more times in the day and are cognitively intact and well enough for, for intervention, then we would refer on for the, the more complex therapies. So you've got um, deep brain stimulation, which is particularly good if people have got off-on problems so they have dyskinesias when they're on and they are frozen and stiff when they're off and those occur with uh, regularity and frequency during the day uh, you've got uh, apomorphine infusion which is a dopamine agonist that you can uh, inject in with a pump a bit like a um, insulin pump that goes subcutaneously and then the third option is duodopa which is dopamine or levodopa rather 
And the third option is duodopa, which is a gel preparation of levodopa that is put straight into the duodenum. So people need a PEDG tube. Um, and so you you inject that into the jejunum, actually. So you inject that into the duodenum. So it gets to the jejunum really quickly and you can give almost a continuous uh, treatment with levodopa. And they're your three more advanced uh, therapies for, for much more complicated people. Brilliant. And so the thing to look for, importantly on examination, is you should be looking in, in a similar sort of place to where you may expect to see a permanent pacemaker. And that's where the deep brain stimulator battery is, is cited. Don't ask me where the leads go. Um, <laughs> as a cardiology trainee, I only know leads that go into the heart, I'm afraid. Um, but one thing which I'll I'll just give the um, the listeners a little peek at one of my exams, which was that it was actually the lower limb neurology examination. And the whole time through the examination, the patient had his had his hands up behind his head, you know, like he's relaxing on a on a sun lounger. It was only when I got the patient up to walk and he had this uh you know very typical gait. And when I sat him back down, he had his hands in his lap. And it was only then that I noted the tremor. So really important just to, in a lower limb, make sure you're looking for those sorts of signs as well. And so that pretty much brings us to the end of everything that you might be expected to do in an examination. We're going to go on to talk about the presentation of these patients, as well as the pertinent investigations and management of these patients with Parkinsonism. Just a quick shout out to our sponsors, and we'll be right back to the show. Pastest.com have covered all your bases. I've just checked on their website and they have an exemplar upper limb neurological examination of a patient with Parkinson's, which can act as the perfect complement to this episode. So after you're done listening to the show, head over to pastest.com paces and sign up to get access to this video case and over a hundred more. But for now, let's jump back into my chat with Dr. Ian Wilkinson. So welcome back. And after completing your examination, you're going to be expected to present your patient back to the examiners. And obviously, you're going to be discussing and presenting all of the signs we've talked uh, talked about so far. You're going to be talking about how you've been able to demonstrate bradykinesia, rigidity, and tremor consistent with a diagnosis of Parkinsonism. However, it's going to be difficult for you to pin down an, an exact diagnosis which is why you say it's Parkinsonism rather than Parkinson's disease. But Ian, there are many different causes of Parkinsonism. So maybe you can just run through a few of those for us and and maybe we can discuss a little bit about the differentiating features between them. So to start with, I think when you've got someone with Parkinsonism, so that's a combination of two of the three of bradykinesia, increased tone and tremor, you need to think to yourself, does this person have normal levels of dopamine in their brain or not? And that's going to give you your two branches to your differentials. So if we take the idiopathic Parkinson's disease side, so we know that people with Parkinson's disease have reduced dopamine uh, in their brain. So that goes down that route. And so if you've got reduced dopamine in the brain, you can say, okay, well, what are the potential differentials within that, that cohort? So you've got idiopathic Parkinson's disease, the most common asymmetric, gradual, relatively slow progressive disease. Then got uh, the next common within that is Lewy body disease or Lewy body dementia is one of the Parkinson plus disorders. So for Lewy body, it's Parkinsonism, something that looks like Parkinson's disease. And in my mind, the plus is there. So the pluses, the things that are different are people don't respond so well to treatment. It progresses faster. 
and people have early onset cognitive impairment, but particularly with hallucinations and particularly quite scary hallucinations. People with Parkinson's disease that go on to develop a cognitive disorder often have hallucinations, but they're often not scary. Second, Parkinson Plus is progressive supranuclear palsy. This is uh, typically symmetrical with tremor, but the tremor is less of a thing. These people tend to fall over very soon. So if someone's falling a couple of years after the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, that, that was a concern. They tend to respond poorly to levodopa again. And that's true for all the Parkinson pluses, actually. And they have a reduced vertical gaze. Uh, and what you're looking for is the speed of vertical gaze initially. Uh, and then the actual amount of movement reduces. And they have a much more rapid progression with survival being five to seven years after diagnosis versus Parkinson's disease, often sort of 15 to 20. The third Parkinson plus disorder is multi-systems atrophy. So these people have degenerate neurological changes with Parkinsonism, so type P, Parkinsonism is the most common uh, feature. But then they also have a combination of autonomic dysfunction and cerebellar dysfunction. And you can have different types. So you can have, as I said, MSA type P, where Parkinsonism is the most prominent. You can have MSA type C, where the cerebellar dysfunction is the most prominent. And then you can have pure autonomic failure, which is a bit rarer. Um, really quite difficult to treat and may have a relative paucity of Parkinsonism or, or cerebellar dysfunction. And then the final Parkinson's plus is cortical basal degeneration. And that tends to be a one-sided condition, often with quite early, quite rapid progression and quite early cognitive dysfunction. And it's described as an alien limb. So this side often just sort of, if it does move around at all, moves around sort of relatively on its own. And so that's the first branch of the differential. So that is your Parkinsonism with dopamine deficiencies. Uh, Parkinsonism with normal dopamine levels. So then you are thinking about, does this person have vascular Parkinsonism? Have they got cerebral vascular disease affecting the basal ganglia, knocking out some of those neurons and therefore giving a Parkinsonian disorder? Secondly, would be drug-induced Parkinsonism. And then thirdly, you're then thinking about things that look like Parkinsonism, but are not actually. So that opens up essential tremor, dystonic tremor, and other causes of, of tremor, you know. So that's where you may want to think about normal pressure hydrocephalus, Wilson's basal ganglia strokes, that, that sort of thing. Uh, they're much more less, much less common, less likely to present in, in paces, I think. But that, that's sort of where your differential is going. So the first bit of your differential is, do I think they've got Parkinsonism? If I do... Do I think they've got a dopamine deficiency? Have they got Parkinson's disease or one of the Parkinson pluses? Or have they got normal dopamine levels? Most likely thing then is vascular Parkinsonism or a drug-induced thing. Or have they got something that looks a bit like Parkinsonism? And then you're thinking about uh, essential tremor or a dystonic tremor. Wow, fantastic. What a run-through of all the different differential diagnoses. And I would say that, like we said before, this is going to be a station where the examiners are going to expect you to do well. And having those extra diagnoses in your back pocket, the drug-induced, the normal pressure hydrocephalus, those are the things which are really going to make you shine beyond uh, your bog-standard candidate. So yeah, really important. And so then we come on to the investigations. And again, this is going to depend on which is your preferred differential diagnosis. Ian, this is your ballpark. This is your wheelhouse. So maybe you can tell us about uh, 
often often in in my experience it, the idiopathic parkinson's disease is often described as a clinical diagnosis and, and you actually don't need any investigations in order to um diagnose it is that right yeah i think that's very true and i think uh, at this point this is where you have to get a bit physicianly and decide what uh what question you're asking yourself you know so if you're asking yourself if you think someone's got idiopathic parkinson's disease and they've got bradykinesia increased tone and tremor and the history fits then then you know if it looks like a duck quacks like a duck you, you call it a duck so then you call it parkinson's disease the caveat to that is that if you look at the brain brain criteria there's a bit in there about progression over time um, and I would encourage you all to have a look at the brain bank criteria for diagnosing Parkinson's disease, because I think it, it is everything we've talked about uh, with the differentials and everything are sort of hinted at through that. Um, and so there's a bit of the, there about progression over time and response to treatment. So I, I don't think you can definitively call something Parkinson's disease for a few years and when, you, when you've known what response to treatment is. But um, you may want to go on and, and do some more investigations. So I think in terms of blood tests, uh, I don't do much regularly. Um, and it's all clinical practice, unless I'm really worried about Wilson's or, or something else. And then, then that's where you, where you would go. Brain imaging, what you're looking for is you're looking for any large tumours, I guess, any large strokes. But particularly what I want to know is I want to know what the vascular load in the basal ganglia is. So for me, it's an MRI is, is, is my first, is my go-to. Then you may want to do some backup things. So often there is a degree of autonomic dysfunction. So you might want to check your lying and standing blood pressures. Cognitive impairment is common in neurodegenerate disease uh, of all types. And so uh, some kind of cognitive dis uh, screen would be helpful. And there's, there's lots that you could do. You know, you could do an MTS, you could do a six sit, you could do a mocha or, do, you know, wh whichever of those, there's, there's a whole range of them. And I don't think there's any one that's particularly better than, than another. The more important thing is just to do one of them. And then you might want to think about a DAT scan. <clears throat> and that then comes down to what your differential is. So DAT is a, um, a nuclear medicine scan looking for the amount of uh, presynaptic dopamine. If your differential is, is this essential tremor or Parkinson's, that will help you. Because in Parkinson's, the amount of dopamine will be low. In essential tremor, the amount of dopamine will be normal. If your differential is, is this vascular Parkinsonism or drug-induced Parkinsonism, it's not going to help you because both of those individuals will have normal levels of dopamine. If your question is, is this idiopathic Parkinson's disease or one of the Parkinson plus disorders, it's not going to help you. They all have low levels of dopamine. Um, so DAT scans are there. It depends what question you're asking yourself as to whether or not you're going to want to do them. Perfect. And I guess the other thing which sort of is, is related to that is, are there any investigations which are helpful in, in then differentiating those Parkinson's plus syndromes from idiopathic Parkinson's disease? Or is that still a, a clinical diagnosis based on, based on your findings? So MRI is quite helpful. You can get something called the hummingbird sign that you get in multi-systems atrophy. <laughs> and there are some, some other um, sort of eponymous signs that you can get uh, on the MRI that will help uh, distinguish uh, a couple of them. Um, but no, it's mostly on sort of clinical uh, progression. Perfect. You know, the, that's probably in, t in terms of a uh, <coughs> investigations, that's pretty much as, as, as comprehensive as it, as it gets. There's not a huge amount to do. And a lot of it is clinical, which is why these, this station is so, is so good in paces.
so then we move on to the management and you you'll probably get asked by the by the examiners you know or you should be expected in your presentation to lead out with your investigations and then talk about the principles of managing a patient with Parkinsonism. So, so Ian, what are the real cornerstones of, of starting to manage these patients? So I think there are, there are three cornerstones to managing patients with Parkinson's disease. And it's been interesting in preparation for this, I've been reflecting on, on my practice uh, and um, making sure that I, I do these three things, I think. So the first is about recognizing that this person that you've now diagnosed with a chronic long-term non-curable treatment is a person. And so you need to work with them to manage their condition. And so there's a huge part uh, of the management is about patient education, um, explaining to people the, the sort of things we've talked about today. Uh, Parkinson's UK is an excellent charity and their website is a great uh, place to direct people to. Um, and all of their information is is really good, all of their booklets. And, and I would uh, encourage you to, to have a look and dig around their website. There's some also some really good uh, educational videos and, and, and stuff on that. So educating the person. Then you need to involve others because as doctors, we are only one cog in the system that looks after people. Uh, and so you need to involve other people. So uh, the first person I involve at this point is the specialist uh, nurse of Parkinson's disease. Um, and I have two or three that I'm lucky enough to work with. And they are just excellent resources. They, they're, they're absolutely brilliant. They know the condition inside out. They know all the um, support that people will need inside out. Then depending on what problems people are having, they may need other members of the multidisciplinary team. And there are really good roles for early physiotherapy, early speech therapy, um, and then uh, as people develop uh, other problems, uh, you know, occupational therapy, dietitians, uh, and the other sort of full range of the multidisciplinary team. And only then really is medication. And so that that's tends to be how I, how I sort of phrase it to people. And then medication works and it works really well uh, if you get the right stuff at the right dose for the right person. But there is no sort of uh, panacea for everyone and no one thing that's going to work perfectly for everyone. So you have to sort of know what's available and then sort of dig into your toolbox, depending on what, what problems people are having at that point of time. Perfect. And again, this is probably something where you may not be expected to know the exact ins and outs of, of, of managing Parkinson's, but what you may be expected is the types of medications which are used and uh, possibly they may ask about some side effects of these medications as well. So we're not going to, we're not going to spend too much time um, diving into this in too much detail, but Ian, maybe you can just run us through the most common medications which you use in, in Parkinson's disease. Yeah. And, and maybe if we go through the, through the NICE guidelines. So the NICE guidelines gives you some options of different treatments, some of which it says you can use as monotherapy in first line and some of which, which you can't. So if we, if we go with that. So first line treatment, you've got three options. Option number one is giving levodopa. So that is, the cleanest treatment that we've got, I think, and you give levodopa and you mix it with a peripheral decarboxylase inhibitor. And you do that because if you ingest levodopa, it's converted very rapidly to dopamine. Dopamine doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier and does all sorts of nasty things in the periphery to um, make you feel uh, pretty weird. So um, 
you want to stop that conversion for as long as possible so that levodopa crosses the blood-brain barrier, because that does, thankfully, and then you want it to be converted to dopamine. Um, so that's the best treatment. comes as co-carodopa or co-benodopa. Uh, that's your, your good uh, starter for 10, I think. Normally lasts about four hours when you first take it, so it's uh, two or three times a day. Uh, start low, uh, go slow. Second option is by blocking the breakdown of dopamine, by using a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. There's one commonly used, and that's risagiline. Um, it's a weak treatment, but it is an effective treatment for some people uh, and can often hold off the use of uh, levodopa for a, a year or so. And then the third type of treatment is a dopamine agonist. So there are a range of these, and they come in short-acting preparations, long-acting preparations, and a patch form. They are pretty good treatments, but the vogue has just been to move away from them over the last few years because they come with a between a sort of an eight and twelve percent risk of impulse control disorders or compulsive behaviour disorders, I guess. And that is something that um, you absolutely need to counsel patients about before starting them, and you need to do it, and you need to tell them that you've done it and write it down and be very clear about it because. Um, if you prescribe it to someone who's got a gambling tendency, they can they can lose an awful lot of money very quickly. So they're your first three potential treatments. So levodopa, uh, dopamine agonists, or monoamine oxidase inhibitors. You can then add those combinations together. Um, and then a bit later on in the disease, you can add in a COMPT inhibitor, and that's catechol-O-methyltransferase inhibitor. Uh, and what that does is that blocks the other breakdown pathway for dopamine and so leaves your dopamine levels higher for longer. And that uh, comes in a nice preparation mixed with um, levodopa. And what you can do is you can therefore use that to make your levodopa work a little bit more and a little bit longer. And it's at that point that I then start, um, maybe this is slightly outside the paces thing, but I then start thinking about dosing this a bit like I dose insulin. So I think about a long-acting treatment overnight and then basal bolus type treatment or bolus type treatment during the day. Um, and I think about those, those curves that you could draw with insulin. And I would think, okay, well, my curve is too short. So do I add another dose to give another curve or do I try and lengthen my curve along a bit to get to the next one? And then the final group of treatments, non-medical, as we talked about uh, earlier, uh, surgical. So that'll be deep brain stimulation. Yeah, fantastic. What a brilliant run through of uh, all the types of medical therapy, which, uh, which are available for, for Parkinson's. I, I don't imagine that the candidates will need to know much more beyond that. Uh, to be honest, that's pretty much um, as much as they would need to know. But yeah, brilliant, brilliant to to hear hear it from someone who manages this day in day out. One question that I thought the examiners may uh, ask, um, which which has been reported as as a very common question, is is about the non motor manifestations of Parkinson's, which you mentioned some of them earlier in the show. But maybe we can just run through a few of the a few of these mm. because because I think you alluded to it earlier, some of these can actually present before the typical symptoms of, of bradykinesia, rigidity, and, and tremor. Yeah. So the non-motor symptoms are increasingly become becoming more uh, focused on in terms of research. And actually, when I describe Parkinson's disease, and I should have done that at the beginning, actually, I, I've turned in my mind that the, the way I describe it is differently. So I now think of it as a neuropsychiatric condition that has motor complications rather than a motor con condition. Um, and so the neuropsychiatric side of things, so the non-motor symptoms are mood disorders, autonomic dysfunctions, so postural hypotension, 
constipation, urinary retention, overactive bladder, really common, um, tiredness, fatigue, anosmia, sleep disorders, so REM sleep behaviour disorders, very common, uh, daytime hypersomnolence. Um, uh, people can develop uh, compulsive behaviour disorders through PD itself. Um, there's a whole range and they are, uh, the, the thing I would point you to and the thing I'd want you to talk about in PACES is a non-motor symptom questionnaire. And I'd want to be, you know, going through the non-motor symptom questionnaire with patients. Brilliant. And in one last thing I just wanted to ask you about was one thing you mentioned earlier, which was the Hernan-Yar classification or, or criteria. What is mm. it? it's, a, it's a scoring system for the severity. It's a, it's of- a, yeah, it's a, a uh, staging system. Yeah. I wonder if maybe you could just talk us through that because I have to say I didn't, I didn't really come across that even even in the research for this show, but I, I recognise having heard it, but I, I definitely haven't come across it um, in, in my clinical practice at all. So I wonder, if, again, it's probably very advanced for paces, but again, it's one of those things which I think if you if you were to mention it, you know, the examiners would probably think, wow, this person's got their stuff together. Yeah, I, so I, I think it's so it's an old rating system came out in the 1960s and it basically goes from stage zero to stage five. So stage zero is no signs of disease. So I, I don't know how you'd ever have someone with, with Parkinson's disease in stage zero because you don't know they've got it. Stage one is one side uh, symptoms. Stage two is both sides. So two, both sides, and no impairment of balance. Stage three is balance impairment and moderate disease, but you're physically independent. Then there's a big jump because then stage four is severe disability, not able to walk or stand. And stage five is needing a wheelchair to move around. Um, and there's some interesting research that looks at the progression through those stages uh, and how long it takes people to progress through the different stages. Um, that's quite helpful for when you're counselling patients as to where they're up to and such. Fantastic. Well, now that we've finished with our content or our medical content, it's time for our non-medical content, which is Quiz the Consultant. Serious business now. <laughs> <laughs> It's time for the greatest regular non-medical quiz to feature on a medical podcast. It's Quiz the Consultant. Welcome to our regular feature, Quiz the Consultant, the quiz where our bosses take on a specialist subject of their own choosing with a caveat that it cannot be related to medicine. Now, Ian, you mentioned at the start of the show, but what is your specialist subject? So we're doing modernish folk music. And why is... have you chosen that, uh, that topic in particular? So I've been very lucky to be uh, in and around sort of traditional music for a long time. The village that I was brought up in has a number of different Morris dancing sides and it's kind of the thing that you do is you have to you have to join in. Um, and then when I moved to where I live now, um, for a long time, there was a, a really great little uh, venue up the road that did sort of uh, acoustic and uh, traditional music gigs and you just got the most amazing acts there and so we got into a real pattern of going you know every friday for many many years to this place and so i've been lucky to be exposed to uh lots of different amazing uh musicians hopefully all of which will come up in this quiz (laughs) (laughs) yeah i've got to say i absolutely love it when a guest picks something which 
you know, I've got, I've got maybe a little bit of interest, but actually, you know, I, I don't feel like I've truly experienced it. And, and just even researching for an afternoon, going through some of the artists um, on, on, you know, these lists, which are sort of like the best folk artists of all time and these sorts of things, it does open a whole new world of ideas. So yeah, I'm certain this is something which I'm going to be uh, having a look, having a look through my Spotify playlists and, and expanding my uh, back catalogue for. Um, and so any particular favourite artists which you would recommend for people as sort of a, a gateway drug into the world of folk? Yeah, so I think there's, there's all sorts of things. So I think uh, I'll give you two. So if you're going down the more traditional stuff, so a band that plays uh, very traditional songs, but in a more modern way, uh, that would have to be Bellahead who excitingly have just announced that they've reformed and going to do some more gigs. And then if you want something that is a bit more um, anarchistic, I guess, uh, then my favourite group are the Levelers. Brilliant. And fingers crossed that some of them might come up in um, this so. quiz. <laughs> <laughs> I stand a chance if those two come up. Otherwise, who knows? <clears throat> well, Ian, this is how we play. Even if you're not sure on the answers, there are some multiple choice options for you. So there are 10 questions in total, two points if you can get the answer without the multiple choice options, or if you need a bit of help, you can take the multiple choice options for one point. And and to date, we've not had a single person get zero. So you're going to get on the board at some point, I feel. Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> good, good, good. Okay, here we go. Let's go for it. Okay. Question number one. The band Bellowhead, unfortunately, broke up in 2016, but have recently reformed. They're known for their traditional dance songs, folk music, and shanties involving many instruments. So with this in mind, how many band members were there? I'll give you two either to way. say 16, I think. Okay, would you like the multiple choice options? <laughs> that means I'm wrong. Okay, yes, I'll have the multiple choice options. <laughs> okay, is it A, 5, B, 7, C, 9, or D, 11? This is according to Wikipedia, the, the yeah, yeah. well-revered so, uh, encyclopedia. Well, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think let's go with 9, I think. It is think 11, 11, unfortunately. It's 11. Yeah. It's 11. It was, you, were, you, went, you went high, um, yeah. and, and it was the highest one. Okay, so we're going to the first of our Name the Song from the Lyrics, and this is a Bellowhead one. We'll okay. haul them high, we'll haul them low, we'll bust their blocks, and away we'll go. Oh, rouse and buster is the cry, a poor man's wage is never high. Oh, uh, that is... That is roll the woodpile down, I think. Correct, for two points. And he's on the board. Good, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Question number three. It's another name the song from the lyrics, and this is a uh, one of the one of the artists you you put me onto, Eliza Carthy. So oh, okay, which, oh, she's so done which, a lot. So this could be hard. <laughs> You've always got the options. Yes, so, yes. So which song is this from? I know dark clouds will gather round me. I know my way is hard and steep. Yet beauteous fields arise before me, where God's redeemed their their vigils keep. So that sounds like a traditional tune. Can I have some options? You can have the options. Is it A, Rolling Sea, B, Space Girl, C, Poor Wayfaring Stranger, or D? Yes, it's that. It's C. It is C. It's, it's, it's Poor that. Wayfaring it's Stranger for one point. Correct. Question number four. In the song Galway Girl by Steve Earle and Sharon Shannon, 
he he sings of a little girl he stopped to talk on a fine soft day IA and whom he eventually lost his heart to. But what colour were the girl's hair and eyes? Uh, give me some options. I okay. think it's blonde hair, but I'm not sure. Okay. Was her hair black and her eyes blue? Her hair blonde and her eyes brown? Her hair brown and her eyes green? Or her hair red and her eyes also red? Uh, the first one with the hair black. Yep, absolutely correct. For one point. Yep. Because her hair is black and her eyes were blue. It's my best impression. <laughs> okay, another sort of uh, more modern folk artist, Leonard Cohen. Hailing from Montreal, Quebec, Canada, is one of the most distinguished folk musicians in history. Which of his songs has been covered over 300 times? Um, did he do Hallelujah? Correct, for two yeah. points. Question number six, a Joni Mitchell question. What is the title of the song where Joni Mitchell asserts that they paved paradise and put up a parking lot? Oh, that's Big Yellow Taxi. Correct. For another two points. Ah, oh, she's fantastic as well. It's, oh, it's great, yeah. You named them at the top. The Levelers have had 12 studio albums. I want you to name two for one point or five for two points. Okay, so there's Leveling the Land. Yep. There's Zeitgeist. Yep. One point in the bag. There's The Levelers. Or Levelers. Yes. There's. Um, what's the one called? It's got Beautiful Day on. Might be called Beautiful Day. It's not on my list. No. no. Happy Birthday Revolution. That's not on my list either. No, oh, okay. No, maybe that, that's it's just, I thought it that was might, a single. Well, it is a single, but I I'll thought give, it was off sale, but maybe not. Okay. I'll give you one um, more guess. I can picture all the covers. This is really hard. <laughs> um, no, no, give up, give up, give up. Okay, so where you got one point from it, you yeah. could have you could have also had uh, the weapon called the word. Oh, that's it. That's the one I was thinking of. Uh, yeah. There's mouth to mouth, hello, mouth pig, to mouth. Yeah. truth and lies is on there, static on the airwaves. They're all coming back now, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they're all there. Yeah. <laughs> okay, continuing on the Leveler's theme, mm-hmm. it's another. It's another name the song from the lyrics. I was drinking in my nightclub. It felt good to be back when Hepburn said "I love you" and Flynn said "Make mine a double Jack." Oh yeah, um, that's a beautiful day, isn't it? Yeah, what a beautiful day! Yeah, yeah, yeah what a beautiful two day. points. Yeah, yeah. Question number nine. The late Eva Cassidy, taken from this world too soon, was famous for her acoustic covers. But whose song did she cover which features these lyrics? Lying in my bed, I hear the clock tick and think of you. Caught up in circles, confusion is nothing new. No idea. No idea. You can take the options. I'll I'll take the options. So, A, is it Songbird by Fleetwood Mac? Time After Time by Cyndi Lauper? Fields of Gold by Sting or Imagine by John Lennon? Fields of Gold. It is Time After Time by Cyndi Lauper. That's, and it's one of my favourite uh, Eva Cassidy covers. Question number 10, your final question. Jim Murray. It's another name the song from the lyrics. Do something for me, boy. If I should die at sea, boy, write a little note, boy. Give me some options. Okay, is it A, Sounds of Earth, B, Lord Bateman, 
C, all you pretty girls, or D, fair Margaret and sweet William? It is all Bateman. It is all you pretty girls. And that brings us to the end of the quiz and leaves you with a total score. I count 11 out of 20, that which is more than a respectable score. Over 50%. That's all right. I'll go with that. <laughs> Ian, we have absolutely loved having you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us uh, on the show to discuss folk music and Parkinsonism. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. And listeners, you can find Ian tweeting under Geriatric Doc. Uh, You can follow the MDT podcast. It's at MDT underscore podcast. And I should also say there are a couple of episodes on Parkinson's within that back catalogue. So you can go back to, I've looked them up, it's season four and season nine of the show. So if you want to learn even more after you've listened to this episode, head over there and have a listen to those. But listeners, that is the end of another show. So please don't forget to like, follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, we always love to hear from you. So give us a shout on our Twitter, which is at Prepaces Podcast. And if you really want to go above and beyond and support the show, buymeacoffee.com slash Prepaces Podcast. But for now, we are just about out of time. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Prepaces Podcast. <laughs>